Welcome to Insights. This is Paul Ellis, Managing Director of Ellis Wealth Management, where we encourage you to invest in what you love. Ellis Wealth Management is an independent financial services firm focused on planning, advice, coaching, and investment management. We are dedicated to the families we serve, and we encourage you to invest in what you love. Within Insights, we look at ways to make our world richer through focusing on sharing, and developing human capital. Well, all right. What a great, great day it is in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. And we are so pleased that you're here with us today. Today, we're going to do something a little special. We're going to pull back the curtain and share a private podcast with everyone. There's a lot of uh, interest in the international markets, and we are so blessed today to have Peter Boardman from Nuveen with us, and Patrick Bowden is also with Nuveen, and he's with us today. But today we're going to have a private conversation with Peter Boardman. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. I truly appreciate appreciate you joining us. Thank you very much. Well, let me thank just you. you your your resume is long i mean it, it's long but i but let me if i may just read what i what i know and uh, so everyone has a real good understanding of of how we're being blessed today peter uh, boardman is a portfolio manager and equity analyst at nuveen prior to this peter was a portfolio manager and equity analyst at the nuveen affiliate nwq investment management company and a portfolio manager and Consumer Durables Analyst with the affiliate Tradewinds Globals Investors, LLC. Now, prior to that, Peter was an international equity analyst at NWQ. And before joining joining the firm, he was a senior analyst with USAA Investment Management, where he covered global automobiles, pharmaceuticals, and semiconductors. Prior to that, Peter spent eight years as a sell-side analyst at UBS Warburg, where he followed the automobile and parts industries in North America, Japan, and Asia. Peter started his investment career in Japan, where he worked as an analyst for close almost 15 years. Peter's a graduate with a BA in economics from Willamette University and an MS in international management from Garvin School of International Management. He's been highly ranked as an analyst in surveys of Greenwich Associates, the Institutional Investor Magazine, and the Nikkei newspaper. He's fluent in Japanese, and Peter's a trusted source for information on the Japanese market and is quoted regularly in the Nikkei newspaper and also appears on CNBC Asia. Peter, Thank you for joining us. That is a resume. <laughs> Not showing my age that much. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Well, listen, your insights will be greatly appreciated today. And and before we begin, I know our audience would love to know a little about your background, flushing that out a little bit. 
and what called you into this interesting and exciting field? Sure. Well, I mean, first of all, yeah, thanks everybody for having me. And, uh, you know, as, as I mentioned, that I'm a portfolio manager for the Naveen International Value Fund uh, and global strategy. Um, and I like to think of myself as sort of a pop puzzle solver and a cheerleader. You know, we're value investors. We simply want to invest in companies that are valued at a discount to their intrinsic value. Uh, we've tried to fare out stocks that we think that the stock market is overlooking and underestimating. And I think of myself as a problem solver, as finding a value investment that not only requires uh, time, but being able to differentiate a company which might be able to value ideas versus a value trap. Uh, I also think of myself as a cheerleader. You know, Naveen has over 60 global uh, research professionals who help us find inefficiencies around the world, try to encourage our analysts to find different, you know, be, to think differently uh, from the herd, to look for long-term opportunities and, and quality companies. Often it's tough. I mean, especially in countries like the U.S., where much of the returns are only in a handful of very expensive companies. But, you know, acting as a cheerleader, trying to siphon through these global opportunities, um, you know, I think um, uh, I think it's pretty, you know, there, there there's some real attractive opportunities out there. Um, you mentioned, you know, what, what got me into this and sort of this path of getting into this business. And I'd say my largest influence, you know, people say, oh, my largest influence, my family, especially my grandfather, who was a dentist in Southern California, who wanted his grandchildren to be financially fluent as he came from a very poor family. Um, but, you know, funny, funny was that he, he sat us down when I was in high school and taught us about REITs. Uh, which were very popular in the 70s due to, you know, high taxes and interest rates. Um, he got me interested in the market. I always wanted to build airplanes. I uh, actually tried to be an aerospace engineer at, at Willamette. Uh, but when I graduated, Boeing went bankrupt and there were no jobs to be had. So I ended up working for uh, Tandy Corporation in Los Angeles doing system engineering and, and sales. And I realized if I was going to progress, I needed an MBA. Ended up going to Thunderbird and, and uh, School of Management in Arizona. Um, and I followed a visiting professor at Thunderbird to Japan um, uh, through a Rotary scholarship that helped him create a U.S. style MBA program for Waseda University, which is kind of like one of the large, uh, kind of elite uh, public, uh, private universities in, in Japan, similar to like Princeton or, or something similar to that. Um, however, my Rotary scholarship was dollar denominated. And that was right when the uh, Japanese signed the Plaza Accord, resulting in the, the sudden strengthening the yen, and it forced me to get a real job. Mm. <laughs> so I, I, in, in business school, I received a job offer from Citibank in New York and asked if I could move it to Tokyo, where they just purchased a small British security house called uh, Victor's Acosta. And I started as a trader and a salesman, but my passion was more research and ended up staying in Tokyo with other firms like Petaluma and UBS as a global auto analyst. Um, after, as you mentioned, after spending 15 years in Japan um, and New York as a sell-side analyst, I made the move to the buy side, working for USAA in San Antonio, Texas. It's an insurance company for the military, and then joined NWQ, which was a subsidiary of Nuveen uh, about 20 years ago. Um, Nuveen, uh, NWQ was owned by Nuveen, but now is fully owned as a, a the, the minorities are bought, bought and, uh, and now it's fully owned by the green. So whilst we've had several rocky per periods in the market, 
you know, the, the management process philosophy of our international value strategy hasn't changed. And, you know, as you mentioned, we've come through a lot of many years of different experiences, but it's been a, it's been a fun ride. That sounds like a great ride. So you, (laughs) (laughs) so you, you, you're, you followed one of your professors to Japan and, um, that must have been an amazing experience for someone who's, you know, a, a young gentleman. Had you been there before, or was it a first first no, time? I've been at Junior Abroad in Japan. I liked it. Um, and Willamette had a good program, uh, and uh, I enjoyed it, and I thought I'd want to come back. Um, when I was working um, uh, for Candy in Los Angeles, uh, most of my customers were uh, sort of, you know, large banks, um, Security Pacific Bank, which is, which is now part of, I, can't, I guess, J.P. Morgan or Bank of America, uh, J, uh, First Interstate Bank, which is also owned by, I think, now Wells Fargo. So most of the my customers were, you know, these large banks and all, and their international department, they had all gone to Thunderbird. So um, Thunderbird seemed to be the place to be if you wanted international MBA and um, when I was there, I tried to improve my Japanese um, and uh, this professor. And, and as my dad would say, I just delayed the inevitable of getting a job by by applying for a Rotary scholarship. Uh, but ultimately, I thought, well, I wanted to still travel and I wanted to play a little bit more. So uh, I had this op- great opportunity to work for this guy, uh, help build an MBA program. And, you know, Waseda is, is a well-recognized school. In Japan, um, it was it was a great experience. Excellent, excellent. Well, I think I shared with you earlier that at the midway point in this year, I shared with clients about the Japanese market and kind of tied it into one of one of the most iconic movies, Die Hard. Uh, you know, around that time, the Japanese market, the Nikkei, was extremely high. And Die Hard, which came out in 87, 88, a drama action movie that took place in Los Angeles on in Nikotoma, Nikotomi Tower. Everything was kind of wrapped around that same time. The building came down in the movie, and approximately about a year later, the Nikkei also came down from its lofty heights. And I think you were sharing with me, outside your window, you can see... One of the buildings from the from the set is that correct? Right, we have Nakatomi Towers. I'm looking at it every day uh, outside our window, so we, we're reminded of the movie. <laughs> I often like to look at, as being an ex an auto analyst in Japan, I always like to remember the, the movie Gung Ho, where the Japanese bought a glass a auto glass manufacturer in in somewhere in the Midwest and had a lot of cultural experiences uh, trying to uh, rebuild that that business. But yeah, I mean. Japan was an economic animal. When I first started learning Japanese, uh, most of my my classmates were um, liberal arts majors. You know, mm. it was different. But then, as Japan became more economically uh, developed, and you know, you had the the uh, yen strengthening after the Plaza Accord, and you had this bubble in in the eighties, um, you know, you start seeing more students who are business majors and now my, my wife is actually a professor of Japanese at Cal State LA um, and 
uh, you know, her students are all um, engineering. They they like manga. You know, <laughs> they want to read manga in the in the original language. So um, you know, you've had this progression, but it's uh, it's it's really a country that's very diverse. It keeps on changing over over many years. Well. Here on the West Coast, we have a strong connection with Japan, and you, whether it's our Seattle Mariners uh, with with Ichiro or just a very strong Japanese community, we have economic questions as well regarding uh, Japan and Asia. I know our listeners will really appreciate your thoughts and your insight. Let me ask a couple of questions, if I may, and and perhaps we can we can learn from your insight. We just mentioned that it's been 30 years since Japan's market dominance. And one of the questions would be, what are some lessons to be learned from the history of the Nikkei Index and that 30-year time period? What are some lessons that could be learned? Sure. And, and first of all, um, while Seattle Mariners had Ichiro, in Los Angeles we have Otani, who's, uh, <laughs> who's uh, a force to be reckoned with. Uh, and but we'll see what happens next year. Maybe he'll go to Dodgers. Maybe he will go to Seattle. Um, I'd say that uh, you know lessons learned from Japan was you have this progression where Japan um, in the you know had became such an economic dominating force, and you had this imbalance in global trade because the yen was artificially held lower. Uh, that the the Japanese they changed the currency. They they took it off of pay of three hundred sixty million dollar and they moved it. They made it free free movement. And the reason why it was actually three hundred sixty million dollar was after World War II, uh, MacArthur um, said, "Well, what what are we gonna do with the yen?" And they said, "Well, the yen is the coins are around, so let's make it let's pay it to three hundred sixty. But clearly, that was too weak with you know development of the country. And um, and so during the 80s, they were trying to, you had the deposit for it, and, and the yen, and that led to a freeing up the currency, which led to the yen strengthening from $360 to $150, and then ultimately down to $100 at one point. Um, and it, it led to an artificial inflation of the overall, overall market. The money supply expanded very quickly. Uh, and Japan, as a country, found itself in dire straits because a lot of the economies was export driven, and and so they had to rejig the economy. They had to reinflate the domestic market with more um, more infrastructure projects, and they had to reflate. They had to change the exports from building, let's say, small, cheap, you know, Toyota Corollas to Lexuses and Infinities and Acuas. And so they had to go up market. And, and so the imbalance led to this huge increase in money supply, which ultimately led to a, you know, a bubble in the stock market and real estate market. Uh, as you remember, you know, the area around the uh, Emperor's Palace was valued at the same level as California in 1989. Um, but the government fearing that that the the inflation or money supply would lead into prices for individual people. It was becoming socially too difficult that the Bank of Japan tried to apply the brakes increasing interest rates and holding them too high for too long, resulting in a stagnant economic growth 
coming at a time when you know labor growth had peaked and started to climb. So the 90s is considered sort of a lost decade for Japan because you had start of stagflation and and deflation, which has lasted up until 2012 for the start of the Koizumi period. In 1989, the Nikkei peaked at 338,900 yen. Today, the Nikkei uh, stock index is at 32,200. It's still not completely recovered for that time. So whilst actual GDP is up about five times since the 1980s, the long-term growth outlook is at best one or 2%. So remember the definition of GDP is essentially the growth of labor plus productivity. So given Japanese population is on decline, it's had to be made up by increased capital spending and improved productivity and output. So, um, so I guess the less, what lessons learned for a country that's gone through this, this reflating of the economy is that, you know, and, and as Bernanke, you know, the, the, the Fed chair Bernanke said, let's drop dollars from helicopters. That can only last so long before it becomes you know, extreme for the economy. And then at the other side, you can only keep interest rates so high for so long because it, it leads to a, another um, problem for the economy. So you have to, you know, it leads to money supply and fiscal policies are important to keep this, to keep our economy balanced and growing at, let's say, a 2% level, in, in, uh, which is generally in line with, with um, labor rates. So in, in from a visual standpoint, if someone can think about a teeter-totter with the long board along the, the top of that fulcrum or that, that midpoint, they can go back and forth across that teeter-totter, but it's going to go up and down. That board on either end is going to go up or down. So raising rates is going to have one set of issues, and then you know uh, money supply is going to have a, a, an issue on the other side, right? And it's a kind of a balancing act, correct? Exactly. Then. Now, I'd say, compare, so obviously, we look, I'll look at the U.S. and Europe and Japan um, as international investors. The issue with the U.S. is that you've had money supply, which you've had fiscal policy, which has been challenging because you've had a, a, a politics, which has gotten involved and it's been very challenging to get fiscal policy through up until the last couple of years. Um, and then on the other hand, you have monetary policy, which has been very dovish. In Japan, because you have a, a declining population and to a certain extent uh, hollowing out of the economy as com- companies have shifted more production overseas, the fiscal policy and, and at the same time, Japan has become very indebted. They have, they have public health care. Uh, and so, you know, public health care means that you have a four, billion, four uh, trillion yen deficit every year, which is $400 billion, $20 billion of deficit alone, just because they offer free health care to, to individuals. So on one side, you have fiscal policy that has to grow the economy, but, but you're limited by your, your uh, fiscal deficit. On the other side, you have monetary policy, which can't be too extreme because then you'll, you'll, you put brakes on the on the economy on too high, and and then at the same time, if it's too weak, you, you start affecting the currency as well as uh, affecting 
the money supply. So it's it's obviously, you know, the banks, the global banks, federal banks, they get they get paid pretty well <laughs> to try to deal with that that balancing act. Uh, <laughs> but it's a challenge. So, you know, it's been said that the U.S., uh, when the U.S. sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. And the U.S. has been raising rates at a, at a record clip. And our economy does seem to be slowing. Will Japan decouple from that trend, uh, catching a cold with, with our sneeze? And can the Japanese economy thrive during a global slowdown? I mean, Japan is clearly tied to the global economy. Um, so, you know, global slowdown will definitely affect the economy. About 18% of GDP is related to exports compared to the U.S. at 11%, uh, but lower than Europe at 25%. Uh, China is Japan's largest trading partner, with about 22% of export imports versus U.S., which is 18. So, you know, they they kind of like that large aircraft carrier in the middle of the Pacific, where they act as a balancing act between, you know, country like China, which had been growing at a very fast rate and slowing, and the U.S., which has uh, seen accelerated, if not slowing growth now. Um, but the country is making changes to partially offset that. And I I always, and I kind of call this the four R's right now, um, which doesn't always make a lot of sense, but it in a way it does, it, it kind of highlights where Japan is currently. So if you think about the four R's, the, the first R is reopening, second R is reshoring, uh, third is reflation, and finally reform. So in terms of reopening, um, you know, the economy post-COVID, remember Japan was closed completely during COVID. Uh, prior to prior to um, COVID, the Japanese had a, a blooming, a blossoming tourism industry with, um, uh, I think the targets at one point were to have 8 million people come in uh, per year. Um, obviously it went to zero, and we've had, I've had this debate with my wife when Japan was closed that, that nobody will go back to Japan once things reopen. Um, they'll go to Europe. They'll go to, you know, um, other countries. I was so wrong. My wife was so right. Uh, J- Japan has become, it's on everybody's tourist bucket list these days. I just give you examples. I mean, flights, like everywhere else, because they took a lot of capacity out of flights, you know, from North America and Delta took capacity out to going to Asia and moved to, to, to Europe. Um, you know, the rate, the flights to Japan now are several times more expensive than they were. Hotel rates, we were there in November of last year. You know, a Hyatt, I think, was at that time $250 a night. We went there three months ago. It was $750 a night. And ultimately, I uh, Nuveen's uh, budget kept me uh, away from the Hyatt. I was uh, staying at a business hotel at a much lower rate. So, um, you know, reopening is a huge driver for the economy. Uh, it's, you know, tourism is growing and, and mm-hmm. it's probably going to continue to grow, especially as China's now reopening. You're going to start seeing an increase in Chinese tourists going to Japan. The, the second R is reshoring. So, TSMC is currently building a large semiconductor plant in Kyushu Island, which is acting as a catalyst for the entire semiconductor ecosystem, such as chemicals, processing, 
creating specialty chips like Sony CCD chips for other camera phones or sensors. We have Kyushu Island, which is the center of the It has plenty of water. It's given, it has a large volcano in the middle, which has plenty of, which gives you plenty of low cost geothermal power. So this has been a driver, this is being a driver for, you know, chip production, but also battery production for, you know, the growth of battery electric vehicles, uh, as well as industrial products. So, you know, that, and, and then TSMC is actually talking about doubling capacity going forward. So reshoring is a, is another theme. It's another growth driver to increase top expenditures in the country. The third is reflation. So Japan is finally experiencing inflation. August CPI was a 3.2%. It's down from 4% in the beginning of the year, but it's still a very high level. Now, over the last 20 years, Japan has gone through a period of deflation with only increase in CPI when, when they raised consumption tax. Now you're getting not only import inflation, but wage inflation. Um, the Bank of Japan's interest rate controls will likely end sometime this year or next, especially with the spring offensive wage increases with the public shinto uh, next, next spring. Uh, and so the, the, so reflation of the economy, especially with weaker yen and higher rates, um, is helping to grow the overall economy again. And then finally is reform. Uh, and this is more for the stock market, uh, but, uh, but overall, it's a sense of how companies are changing. You know, given Japan's declining birth rate, pension years are increasingly becoming a, a larger factor of pressure in the social security system. They say that Japan sells more senior, senior citizen diapers than baby diapers. Uh, pensions and the social security system not only, um, not only bonds forever, as prices do not go down for, go up forever, um, at some point, there has to be a, a, a push to improve corporate governance and shareholder returns in order to prevent the balance of pension assets between equity and bonds. Um, you know, if you look at the UK uh, pension market, I think it's 20% equity, 60% bonds, 20% alternatives. The Japanese pension market is more like, you know, 90%, 95% bonds, 5% equity. So, the, and, and that just doesn't work for pensioners, uh, especially if you want, you know, because interest rates can never go down forever. So the Japanese Pension Association, the Tokyo Stock Exchange, and other government-related agencies have tried to put pressure on companies to increase their returns. Um, the simple, you know, if you're a Japanese manager of a Japanese large corporation and you're worried about the government deficits, you're going to, you're going to hold more cash on your balance sheet so that when you retire, you know that you're going to have a pension. And that's been the endemic problem of deflation is that people, companies have not invested. Cash has been hoarded. Um, and there's just been very little growth. And so they're trying to establish reforms such that, uh, putting pressure on companies to change that. So the answer, the simple answer has been, um, not only to improve ESG, but to focus on companies trading below one times price to book um, to increase their shareholder returns. Um, and with 50% of Japanese companies trading below one times price to book, um, it's leading to large uh, and growing buybacks and increased dividend returns to shareholders. So ultimately, total return by Japanese, um, the Japanese market this year is around 6.5%. Um, 
which is pretty good compared to what the U.S. and Europe is doing. Truly insightful. Two things really jumped out at me. One is the Japanese birth rate and the effect on the economy. And if you could flush that out. And then the second was that Japan has quite a bit of trading with China. And with political tensions with China increasing, what does that mean for Japan? Are they going to move more jobs to Mexico or in other areas of Asia? Those are two questions that I had. Sure. So, so obviously, Japanese is low. Um, aging population means that you know, demographic demographers have predicted that population will fall from the current 125 million people to 87 million people by 2070. However, it's not just Japan. It's all of Asia. Uh, Korea has even a lower fertility rate than Japan. And China, due to a one-child policy in the past, and efforts by couples to enter a middle or to upper class means that they're only, you know, they've only had one child, even without the policy, uh, it means the population will also fly. So, you know, people are saying that China will, uh, or statisticians are saying that China, by 2050, the population will fall below 1.3 billion people over 1.4 today. So Asia in general is becoming older and population is shrinking. Asia, as opposed to the U.S., doesn't have, um, doesn't have immigration, uh, wide in, in immigration to replace people. So that um, that's led to a change in economic policy. So what is the effect? You know, first is that Japan has had to shift much of its lower value added production on fuel. Uh, this shift Japanese trade imbalance to a current account imbalance with growing foreign revenues funneling back to Japan. The second is that older people who might not want to retire, the companies are saying, well, why don't you stay around longer? So people are retiring later in life. And given Japan is one of the, one of those blue zone regions of the world, the average lifespan tends to be longer, uh, given, you know, diet and genetics. This means that people are staying Staying in the workforce longer, demanding more labor-saving devices such as robots and transportation. So, for example, you know, JR train system uh, throughout the country is upgrading all the stations to accommodate elderly people with elevators and, and escalators. So, a lot of a lot of changes that have gone with the aging society. Uh, in terms of political issues with China, mm-hmm. um, you know, China and you know, U.S. and Japan. Relations have been weak, have been poor in the past. China and Japan, because of World War II and and uh, Japan's uh, efforts to take over China, remain you know a uh, political tension as well. Um, you know, offshoring is not just a uh, Japanese things. Obviously, U.S. as well. You know, rising labor costs, such as currently being negotiated in UAW. We'll see, you know, one and two supply, you know, tier one and tier two suppliers increase production to Mexico. China is also becoming a high labor cost country. Uh, wages have increased as well. And so what's interesting is that uh, Japan has shifted a lot of their production to Southeast Asia. You know, Malaysia is a huge manufacturing base of air conditioners and, and consumer electronics, Philippines also has tax incentives. The next sort of big growth market is India. Uh, India is sort of the new China. Uh, and the Japanese have consistently had very strong relationships with India. If you look at their largest automaker, it's 
with Maruti Motors, which is a subsidiary of Suzuki Motors of Japan. Uh, so um, despite China, so the relationship with Japan and China is, is never, you know, it's never easy, but at the same time, they, the Chinese realize that, you know, it, it, you know, because they signed in under WTO, that they need, the Japanese have a right to sell into the country. China has, has been moving towards a 100% local content policy over the last year or so. Um, and that's obviously, and you, know, you can see that with auto companies where we're telling tier one suppliers, tier two suppliers to have more local production. The Japanese have been supplying components to the China, China. Um, so, you know, you look at the truck companies, uh, robot manufacturers, um, while Spanik, which is a large uh, robot, Japanese robot company that does welding and, and assembly, um, you know, Beijing machinery is sort of China's Fanic, uh, you know, they can do ADV and Cooper in Germany. But if you look at the components within Beijing machinery, they're all Japanese. <laughs> they use Naptesco precision reducers. They use Nidex motors. So, you know, Japanese tap have by moving up the technology level, they've, they've kind of endeared themselves into China's movement into higher precision areas. Uh, and so they do, you know, we're not, you're not expecting a large growth out of China, but it's, it's enough to generate free cash flow from the companies. And then they're reinvesting in, in India, which is potentially going to be the next big growth value with over. Excellent. Thank you. Well, Nuveen is a global diversified firm. And one of the offerings that Nuveen has is the ADR portfolio, the global international value portfolio. And you're, you manage that. And it has components that are focused on India as well as Asia and Japan. With your vantage point, managing the portfolio and having oversight to these relations with other countries, how does that fit together in your ability to manage that portfolio? So, I mean, we were investing up globally. You become you're essentially market agnostic, although you have to view it on markets. Obviously, we're, we've been looking at Israel, for example, recently. Uh, but and Israeli banks, as you given the war, you know, you, you buy in war and sell in peace is sort of the old adage. Uh, but Israeli banks are cheap, but the shekel has been weakening because you know you, you're having to reflate the economy given the Middle East issues. So we have to think about both politics, currency on a macro level, but at the same time we look at individual. I mean, ultimately, we're in, in investing in individual companies. And I would say that, you know, we, our philosophy is to invest in, uh, companies that, which are trading at discounted intrinsic value, low, low valuations. We look for companies with good risk reward and we look for catalysts or some investment thesis where we're not owning a value trade. So we're, and we're constantly monitoring the world and constantly monitoring our portfolios to make sure that none of that, you know, all of those sort of areas fit into our portfolio. I'd say that, you know, Having my Japanese experience doesn't mean that we're always going to be investing in Japan, although currently we do like investing in Japan. And one of the attributes of a portfolio 
is that we focus on good companies with strong balance sheets. Japanese, Japan is a cash-rich country. It has poor corporate bond markets. So companies funding has traditionally been reliant on bank bonds and equity. You know, dur- during times of distress, Japanese banks have been unfriendly lenders, which causes cash crunch by even large companies such as Honda and Toyota. So we've tried to find opportunities where, you know, the market is just sort of missed. And in Japan, you know, we try to find unique areas where it is uniquely Japanese, like, you know, with strong brands, uh, video games, autos, cosmetics, industrial components like air conditioning, and, you know, certain foods like noodles, for example. So I, I, you know, I went through the period in Japan when Japan was a technology consumer leader, um, in consumer electronics leader, powerhouse. And that all shifted to Korea and China. Um, you know, whatever happened to Sanyo Electric, whatever happened to Sharp, I mean, they've now been usurped by Samsung and, and, uh, TSMC. So, you know, you have to be cognizant that there is change and markets, companies change and markets move. So we try to balance, you know, areas we think the Japanese have a competitive edge, but also areas where they have strong, you know, also strong domestic players like transportation and logistics utilities. There are no foreign competitors who also become cash cow or high yielding bonds. So I kind of, I think of the Japanese market as big opportunities for change because, as I mentioned before, but also, you know, Europe is also an opportunity. Europe, you know, the U.S., about um, 15, 20% of S&P is invested, you know, reliant on emerging markets. Europe, it's twice that. You know, you go to, if you go to China, they drive Audis, Mercedes, BMWs. You go to South, you go to um, Brazil, they're driving, you know, Stellantis, um, as well as Renault and Volkswagen. So the, uh, Europe, um, tends to have greater exposure to emerging markets. It's obviously a larger exporter than, than the U.S. So there are other opportunities in Europe where that that offer you know unique positions where the market often misses, and so that that's kind of where we're those, those are the sort of pools where the markets are inefficient, where you know, and we have companies with good quality companies trading on discounts in terms of value, but also strong balance sheets. So we we you know, a portfolio management is not always about where you're the best investor. It's also trying to capture balance, you know, on the downside, trying to balance risk and reward. And so we're constantly trying to balance that risk and reward so that, you know, we might we might not always outperform on the upside, but we're, we're definitely not going to outperform on the downside. And so over time, you know, investing with us means that you get a, a pretty good, you get a good return that would, would ultimately, and we've shown this over time, outperform the market. Yeah, there's a there's a phrase I like that's something like this. We can't keep you from keeping from getting wet, but we can try and keep you from getting pneumonia. (laughs) (laughs) Well, an ever changing world makes for a really dynamic market and partners like Nuveen are so important. I truly want to thank you for for joining us today. Before we let you go, is there anything you're curious about right now outside of work? Um, well, my passion is swimming, uh, and so I, I like to swim 
a couple of kilometers a day if I can. I like to exercise, but I mean, you need to you need to phase down if you're in a day. Um, I also like puzzles and cards. I used to play a lot of bridge in high school and college. Uh, now it's more road games and crossword puzzles. Uh, but yeah, I mean those. You know, those, those, I try to just sort of balance my life through, 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 you know, trying to keep a balance of work and, and play. Excellent. Well, we've got to keep moving. Got to keep moving. Right, yeah. we can do it by choice, or we can do it by prodding, and I suggest the choice is is a much better way to go. Oh well, Peter, thank you so much for your time today. This is absolutely terrific, absolutely terrific. And if people are interested in following your portfolio, then the best way to do it, obviously, is to contact me here at Ellis Wealth Management. But they can also follow Nuveen online and um what's the best email address for people to follow online um well you could call you obviously naveen is around the country um uh, you can also contact me <laughs> peter.horgman at naveen.com or patrick uh patrick.boden b-o-w-d-e-n at naveen.com excellent well thank you so much for your time today i look forward to speaking with you again thank you so much Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. And until next time, this is Paul Ellis reminding you to invest in what you love.